I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Susie Marshausen. Susie is a 28-year-old mother, writer, and coach. I attended high school with Susie and have been watching her personal and spiritual development and journey from afar. During this conversation, we discuss her recent ayahuasca ceremony, the difficulty of releasing attachment as a new parent, and how the pain of abandonment takes on a new meaning for her. Before we talk more about Susie and this really great conversation, I want to talk about my, my uh, On the Education of Physician posts. These are my weekly reflections on medical school from the very first anatomy lab of medical school to now uh, this weird fugue state between medical school and residency starting as a psychiatry intern. And uh, so on May 26th, 2019, I published On Funereal and Familial Reflections, or The Beginning of Intern Year. This was on May 26th, 2019. I, pub I wrote, this week I reflected on the memorial and funeral services for my paternal grandmother. I traveled to New Hampshire for this large family gathering, the first time in over a decade that so many cousins and aunts and uncles shared a common dinner table. I look forward to more gatherings like this in the near future, but hopefully without a debt to prompt the event. Then more. Recently, on June 2nd, 2019, I published On a Move, book ended by birthdays. This week, I reflected on the move. We have finished moving out of Coopersburg, which left a suite of memories in its wake. We are turning this Orfield house into a home. And all the while, we had a my birthday last weekend and Mackenzie's this most recent weekend. And so you can find these posts all in their entirety at www.eugenehkim. That's E-U-G-E-N-E-H dot Kim, K-I-M. And uh, you can also find them on uh, collected into Kindle and paperback formats available on Amazon uh, if you just search for On the Education of a Physician or just type in Physician Education. Search, en search engine optimization has gone in my favor. So back to Susie. Susie is God- a creator, and everything. Before Susie dies, she wants to know and live the truth of who she is and to have faith in her soul's purpose to truly follow that path. When Susie dies, she wants to be fearless and to release loved ones from attachment. After Susie dies, she wants to do it all over again. And in conclusion, Susie says, you are unconditionally loved. You are supported in every way possible that you could ever possibly imagine. You have everything you need right inside of you. I would pray that you are able to open yourself up to this, to experience life as the heaven it is meant to be, because we are all everything. We are all one. Good word, Susie. And so as I mentioned before, I've known Susie uh, back when we were in high school together. Uh, she, I called her Susanna. And this is something that we talk about in the warm-up questions, which I'm going to put at the end of this conversation, because I think we get into some really good stuff uh, in that in those warm-up questions. Um, and so I'll throw that at the end. So you can just jump ahead like an hour or 90 minutes, or you can just, you know, ride it out and listen at the end. And uh, so, yeah, I know, I've known Susie since uh, I was in my early teens, mid-teens, and uh, I knew her brother, Alex, and uh, that's how I knew her. And... Uh, I've known her since then. I've kind of we've been in peripheral orbits. Uh, she and her husband Mike Marshausen, uh, they run a coaching. Uh, they they coach together online, and that's actually how she and her and her husband, uh, uh, she her son and her husband are able to go down to Mexico uh, from a lot of like a 
big part, chunk of the year uh, to coach remotely, do a lot of their work online, um, and raise a son in this wonderful, beautiful weather. Um, and so I... I actually jumped, they had an interview, they had a podcast a couple of years back, um, the Mike and Susie show, I believe it was called, and they interviewed me back when I was still figuring out how to get interviewed and how to be able to present myself, you know, so don't, don't go searching for it, it was back when I was too raw, but uh, that was before they had their son, um, Lucan, and uh, more recently they had the son, their son, Lucan, and he's about a year old now, uh, maybe about a year and a half now that, uh, as of, as of, you know, me recording this intro, and um it's been really wa fun to watch their journey along the way and sort of trail behind them in this whole parenthood thing. And uh, we talk a lot about her recent ayahuasca ceremony. I think it was only a couple weeks, maybe a week or two after the ayahuasca ceremony. It was her first ceremony. She's psychedelically naive, so it was a really profound experience for her to have, you know, all the cobwebs shaken out, the, all the joints loosened up. You know, uh, it was a really great conversation. I think it was... Um, speaks to the power of, of uh, intentional psychedelic use. And uh, we talk a lot about of the things that she has learned in, in the wake of that, you know, during and also in the integration afterwards. Uh, it was a really great conversation. And I think that you will enjoy this conversation. And I, uh, you know, upon listening to the interview, I think that uh, there are some points that I was like, oh, this is a really fun uh, fun discussion that we have, but I think that it would be more fun to also poke in other ways because so much of the conversation is focused around the ayahuasca ceremony. And while that gives you a really great lens into be able to talk about the, the subject of death, I think that there were some things that I was missing as an interviewer in terms of my ability to really probe and question her on some of her beliefs but i think i do a decent job i don't think it was a bad interview by any means and uh, i think that i would really like to interview her husband uh mike uh, i think that would be a lot of fun because he's uh he's doing some very good work as a healer um as a person working on uh mending those traumatic uh wounds and scars of people's uh and it's, you know, they're just in a very different, or they're in a similar orbit in terms of like health and wellness as, you know, a lot of the medical folks that I interview, but they're doing it in such a different way and, and with a different focus uh, that I think it's a really good uh, counterpoint to present as well. So I hope that you are excited for this conversation, that you got your tea, coffee, whatever, you got some work lined up or a walk or, you know, whatever, or a long drive lined up ahead of you for this really great conversation with Susie Marshausen on death. It is March 26th, 2019. I'm sitting here in my Coopersburg home and Susie Marshausen is sitting in her Playa del Carmen, Mexico home. And we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Susie, what are the four prompts? I am before I die, when I die, and after I die. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? Hmm. I am God, and I am a creator, and yeah, I am everything. God with a capital G or lowercase g? All of the above. <laughs> okay. All right. And I can explain, I use the term God very, uh, in my own terms not necessarily what are those own terms <laughs> um yeah so i don't shy away from using the term god even though i don't 
necessarily associate with any specific religion. Um, I think because I never associated really strongly with a religion, so I don't have any sort of um, definitive like idea of what quote unquote God capital G is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I, so I use the term God because that's what feels right to me. But I guess anything that people would call source, universe, um, whatever you define as like the overarching power that is this like creative force in all of the universe. Um, so yeah, so I use God and I relate to God and as God. Um, but that's how I view it. Not necessarily like the Christian God or mm-hmm. whoever. So what does, what does it mean to you to say, I, like, what does that mean? Like I am God. It means that I am not separate from God and I am part of God and God is part of me. Um, so I think like I was talking about, about giving that power away, I don't choose to give that power to something that is creating things in my life. Uh, I know that I'm responsible and I know that I have everything that I need to create change. And so it's not necessarily this like egoic thing, like, Oh, I am God. And I, Mm. you know, I, I can do everything and I don't need anybody, but it's, it's just this way to feel really empowered. And, um, we'll get into sort of how I really came to understand this for myself when we dive a little bit into that ayahuasca journey, but it was something that had been building and I had known on a more, um, more conscious level and had accepted was that we are all part of this energy. Um, and God does not, let me see how I want to phrase this. Um, I don't believe that there is a God who is watching me and saying, and you know, I'm not like a little doll that is, you know, being controlled by something outside of me. Um, and I just, I know that I have the power through God to live my life and to create. And yeah, it's, a, uh, it's, it's really empowering to feel that way and to really kind of know it on a more, uh, internal level i guess and you had spoken previously that uh earlier that you did you don't really have an association of the word capital g god uh mm-hmm. so what did you have a religious or spiritual upbringing uh, or, or none and you just kind of have come into this like where where's this where, where where how were you brought up <laughs> um so i did go to like uh uh, what would it be with Sunday school, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. when I was really little and we would go to church on Easter and Christmas and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every once in a while when, uh, when we felt, well, when my parents felt like it, I was never <laughs> like, let's go to church. Um, so I definitely was, I guess, brought up Christian. I am baptized Christian. Um, but I, never really resonated with it. I liked singing and whatever when we went to church, but it never really felt right. And it was never pushed on me either. It was never like my family was never like, oh, you know, you must believe these things and read the Bible. Um, So I feel like it was pretty open to, for me to just kind of follow what felt 
right for me. And for a long time, I was not interested in spirituality at all. It was furthest from my mind. Uh, and what really got me started was doing a lot of the uh, kind of personal development work, which isn't spiritual necessarily, but it really gets you to start reflecting on yourself. And that very often leads to exploring spirituality. And um, that was kind of the path that I went down. And when I started reading more spiritual uh, books and then moved to Playa del Carmen, and there's just like this amazing um, community here that you can just explore anything you could imagine and connect with people who are on a similar path, on a similar journey. Um, that was when it really started to kind of sink in like, oh, I, you know, there is more to this life that I'm living. There's more to uh, what's going on than what I'm just perceiving with my ears, nose, hands, you know, mouth, whatever, my senses. And that's when like the real journey begins is kind of when you start to realize, okay, there's a little bit more than meets the eye going on. And I want to understand it and experience it myself. Um, so yeah, so I wasn't raised, but I didn't understand the concept of Christianity and the Bible and kind of the general gist of it. Yeah, but it sounds like it never really sank in and it never really was, like you said, it wasn't like your guiding spirituality. And mm -hmm. and so you talked about how uh, this personal development work kind of gave you the seed, right, to to mm -hmm. get into this, uh, to to uh, blossom a little bit more. And then it sounds like um, this this community down in Mexico in Playa del Carmen it was a, is really good for you in terms of nurturing that and continuing that mm -hmm. board. Um, and then I also know that this ayahuasca experience was a, was seems like a big game changer for you, but now it's rel relatively recently. Is there mm -hmm. anything on the road to that ayahuasca uh, ceremony that we should talk about, or should we go into that? Yeah, I think maybe just like a quick little like yeah, because it because it, it relates to what I was talking about before about that just recently like I had been consciously understanding a lot of the concepts but hadn't really chosen to bring it like into my heart mm -hmm. um and choosing to really accept that responsibility that I have if I want to make any sort of transformation in my life I have to be willing and open to receive that and to accept that I need to be responsible for um for the journey that I'm on and so that actually ended up happening oddly enough when I decided to do um, a physical, uh, brain and spirituality, spiritual detox, um, as well as like a complete digital sort of a detox. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just like went off all social media. I changed my diet completely. And when I did both those things, which I honestly think that getting off social media was way bigger than just like the physical detox, uh, for me to really like allow myself to hear myself and to know myself uh, because I wasn't distracted by all of these things. And that's when, when I opened up to that and cut out a lot of the distractions, my intuition started just like yelling in my ear. And I felt like I was under, I was getting to know myself for the first time because I was actually allowing my thoughts and my, my I, if you want to call it like spirit guide or whatever it is, my higher self to come in and guide me, that was when everything really started changing. And the ayahuasca journey um, 
was super spur of the moment. And I really never thought I wanted to do it. I, I was like, oh, I'm curious, but I did not actually want to do it for like a long time. I was like, oh, maybe when I'm like 40. Um, and I, one night after all this was happening and I was getting my, uh, my intuitive little nudges and really hearing myself clearly, I laid in bed and I said, I said, okay, I'm here. I hear you. I'm like, I've accepted you in whoever you is myself, really. Um, I'm ready for massive transformation. Tell me what to do and I will do anything. And that was my, my prayer to basically myself. And the first thing that came, popped in was, you'll do anything? Okay, will you do ayahuasca? <laughs> I was like, damn it. You called my bluff. The one thing I don't want to do is the one <laughs> thing I'm being told to do. And I immediately ego kicked in was like terrified. Um, and I said, okay, okay, I'll play this game. I will, I will, you know, I'll register for a ceremony. I'll get go to a ceremony. If the perfect, the stars align and all the perfect scenario works out. So I'm nursing Lucan still, and um, he's 15 months now. And so I, I haven't left him overnight. So I said, okay, well, night ceremonies are out, which if you know about ayahuasca, pretty much all ceremonies are night. And so I said, okay, well, I'm not going to go to a night ceremony. I am, I want, I need to be able to get a ride with somebody who I know and trust. Um, and, uh, what was the other one? Uh, whatever it was, I had some stipulations and I was like, okay, You'll, so you'll do anything, but I, I'll do anything, <laughs> but you have, so I said, okay, if you, if you really want me to do this, then you make it work and make it happen. And I kid you not the next morning when we woke up, uh, Mike woke up to a text from a woman who he met at the ceremony that he did a few weeks prior messaging him about a ceremony in the day that she was going to, and she wanted to know if he wanted to go cause she was going to be driving there. Mm. And I, he, he was just like, um, I think this is your sign. And I said, okay, fine, fine. <laughs> I'll do it. And, um, and I don't mean to say that I did it just like in a, spur of the moment, like, oh yeah, whatever, I'll do it, which I think is very common um, and doesn't show much respect for the medicine. I think mine was, I respected the medicine so much that I was like, not sure I wanted to do it because I wasn't positive I was ready for it. But I realized that that was really my ego sort of trying to prevent me from receiving what I received during that ceremony. So I signed up for it and 10 days later was the ceremony and I had a lot of ego battle going up, <laughs> going into it saying, Oh, maybe I'm not supposed to go. So, um, a question. Is this, was this your first uh, exposure to psychedelics or is this yes. your first? Oh, so this is yeah. first like any so, like beyond any, cannabis, anything like anything exactly. that is like pretty psycho, pretty potent psychoactive substance. Yeah. So I had no idea what to expect, and Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I'm like, oh, like, I'm sure we'll be fine. Uh, but I was terrified because I literally have never, like, I you know I've probably I've smoked too much cannabis and had like a bad you know like more like the the typical like oh i'm paranoid mm -hmm. never anything like 
that will like break a, the ego uh, in half. Exactly. <laughs> and so my ego was like, don't do it. <laughs> uh, but I knew it was just this knowing this just, I knew that that the, the, the cliche about, um, about ayahuasca, you know, she'll call you when she wants you to come. Uh, that a hundred percent happened. And so I said, I accepted it and I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go and just keep an open mind and I have no idea what to expect. So I'm just going to go in with no expectations. And of course I was trying to like, Oh, I wonder what will happen. Oh, I'm trying to think nothing. You cannot possibly comprehend or think of a not like what would happen if you haven't experienced psychedelics and especially ayahuasca. So all my little fantasies or ideas of what would happen completely shattered because I had no idea that it was going to be like that. Um, but yeah, so I ended up going to ceremony and had my world absolutely rocked in many ways. And like you said, your ego completely split in half. Um, so yeah, that was, that was what led up to it. But um, I went in with complete respect and total, like, I am at the mercy of this medicine. I accept you and you, sh you can show me whatever you need to show me, whatever I'm supposed to see. Um, I, so I didn't go in with any sort of like, oh, I want to answer this specific question. Um, it was just, you, you know, I've been called to this. Uh, I'm willing to receive the medicine in whatever way I'm supposed to. Uh, so yeah, and I sure did. <laughs> so there are two ways we can proceed from here. Um, I understand that uh, what you receive during an ayahuasca ceremony is, is deeply personal and you may or may not be in a place that to ready to share that or relate kind of like how you process that. Um, so I want to leave that up to you, whether you don't want to pursue that or whether you want to just kind of jump ahead, you know, leave people wondering, but also just say, like, how do you, did you take what you learned from the ceremony and applied it to your life? And like, what did you learn? Um, well, I'm completely open to, to sharing the experience. I'm actually writing a book about it because I was told that I was supposed to write a book sharing mm -hmm. literally the entire experience and I have it so like a lot of people don't remember details mine is just like boop, boop, boop. like I could just like watch it like a movie in my head over and over again um mm -hmm. and it that the reason that I would want to share obviously not the whole thing um but little pieces is because it really relates to this topic of this podcast which is death um <laughs> and a lot of my journey had to do with that. Um, but not just death, but it was, it was literally just living an entire life cycle mm -hmm. and understanding so many things about, um, about the nature of life, the nature of death, the nature of why we're here on this planet, the nature of our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with um, other people and with the planet and uh, why things are really, um, unfortunately, uh, coming to very catastrophic uh, levels on the planet. Um, and a lot of that has to do with our disconnect from quote unquote God. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how in depth you want me to go. Um, we got, we got an hour <laughs> and 20 minutes. We can talk the whole time about that and just blast through the last three problems. Uh, you Whatever, however you want to, however you want to divvy it up. Okay. Well, I think I think I'll be able to go through the three prompts like 
as we go. Um, okay. Because, okay. Oh, yeah, we can oh, sprinkle it out throughout the whole thing. Yeah. That's how you want to do it. Yeah. Um, well, and because it is like, you know, the before I die is the life. And so I feel like pretty much the prompts go through the journey. Um, and I'm not going to get into super crazy detail because I'm going to write a book on it. So you can read the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I think, yeah, I think I'd like to first just sort of describe um, a little bit about what happened. Um, so mainly, or do you have questions that you want me to? Um, I guess, you know, and this might be something we can dive into later. Um, but I think it's very interesting that, you know, you're, you're psychedelically naive until this point, <laughs> and especially having a one-year-old with you, um, bre actively breastfeeding him. And that's, you know, that's a very, that alone is a very psychedelic experience to have a life attached to you. And so dependent on you and, and to go through the process of giving birth and the, the changes that mm -hmm. occur in, in your partnership as a result of that. Um, but I also one, you know, it's just like, how did, I'm sure that there were echoes of that throughout the entire experience, because personally, I know that my experience, my relationship to death has changed dramatically from throughout my relationship with Mackenzie, you know, before I met her, uh, I had, I had a profound ego death experience. And then, you know, as our relationship continued, I got, I went through stages of realizing like, oh, uh, you know, we're in this for the long haul, but you know, one of us is probably going to die first. And either that means she leaves me alone in this world or I leave mm. her alone in this world. And then now with June is there's this whole different thing about like, if I die, it's like one realizing like, what does that actually mean for them? You know? And so it's a very different experience. And it's, it's now at this stage of his life, it doesn't really mean a lot to him because there's so much love in his life. But you know, as he gets older, that'll be, it'll be a, a, a sequence of like, layers of understanding for him as he gets older and older and kind of understanding like getting to that to my age you know so that's a that's a very interesting question um so i don't know i don't know if that was really a question but it was just more of like a what an interesting thing to be psychedelically naive and have that uh you know all the, all the all the cards stacked up in that way for you yeah yeah and um that's what a lot of my um my ceremony my journey was was um because I'm very, I'm very passionate about motherhood. Um, mm -hmm. I've always kind of known that being a mother was my calling. It was really what I wanted for my life was to be a mother. And now that I am a mother, I know why. And it's incredible and I love it. Um, but yes, it was quite the, uh, quite the, uh, situation scenario to be in uh to go into this experience where having attachments is very difficult especially the kind of attachment that you have when you're physically nourishing a human being that needs you um because that is a very 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 intimate and deeply ingrained attachment and um yeah that was probably my most difficult uh the most difficult part of the experience was um really allowing myself to well <laughs> allowing I use allowing <laughs> very loosely because I fought it with every ounce of myself um when I started to feel the um the psychedelics come on and got really uh I mean there's no 
I try to describe what it's like when it starts to happen, but there's really no way to fully describe it. But um, just basically my entire reality was not, you know, it was a completely different reality that I was entering into and something that I've never experienced before. So it was scary um, to reconcile. And for most of it, I didn't even have the thought in my head, like, oh, this is just ayahuasca and I'm going to be fine. And nobody dies from ayahuasca. Like I'm going to come out of it. It was so real and so like deeply all encompassing that it was just, it was my reality. And I, there weren't very many times when I was like thinking like, oh, this is just going to wear off and I'll be fine. Um, and that was probably the hardest part was when I felt myself start to disappear completely. I was basically ego death. Uh, and I started to accept it at first. I was, I was surrendering to it. I was allowing it. I had this really amazing psychedelic experience. And then when that wave sort of like slowed down and I came out of it a little, I was like, Oh, that was cool. Like, is that what ayahuasca is? And then it started hitting harder. And I, and that's when I started panicking because I realized that I really don't have any control. And I had this immediate urge, like, no, I, I can't, I can't disappear. Lucan needs me. I need to, and I had this really intense want to just like make it stop. And I wanted to just go home and see my son. And I didn't want to be in this situation anymore. I was so angry with myself that I would choose to do this. I was like, I, I couldn't believe that, that I, I would put myself in a situation where I would possibly just disappear on my son. And I really felt like I was going to disappear. Uh, so I started fighting it a lot. And that's when it got really difficult, because you can't fight it. Um, and it just everything and during the day, you could see everything. So like, my, my, my hands were like melting, I was <laughs> melting, I was, the bugs were like crawling through my veins. And I was trying to it was it was a nightmare it was literally like what you would think a nightmare is but you're living it and eventually a woman came up and held me and <laughs> luckily she was like a helper for the shaman and she came over and she she laid me back and because I would I wouldn't close my eyes because I said if I close my eyes I can't at least sort of see reality like I still at least see the shaman I know he's here um, so I wouldn't close my eyes because I knew if I closed my eyes, I was just going to disappear. And so she came and she laid me back and she told me, she, she laid me on her shoulder and she started kind of just calming me. And she just kept saying, relax, relax. This is your time now. You're the baby now. And when she said that I closed my eyes eyes and I laid on her and I, I closed them but I kept looking up a little bit at her and I just became a baby and I became her baby and when I say that for anybody who's listening who has not experienced um, ayahuasca I'm not saying like oh I felt like I was her baby I literally was a baby and I was being held by my mother and she looked down at me and I just I felt so deeply what unconditional mother's love is. And it was the most incredible feeling that I have ever felt in my life. And it, it really just showed how much love a mother really has for their children. 
And granted, I have never felt like I really, truly felt that until that moment. Um, because I think people just have so many traumas and filters and things that are standing in the way of truly expressing that unconditional love that they have for their children. Um, which was a learning lesson in and of itself for me, for me. Um, I really just felt how much love is there from a mother and it was so beautiful. And I realized how amazing that gift is to give to a child, to a newborn, to a baby, uh, that unconditional love. And then she started trying to get up to go back to her seat. (laughs) That it was the, the duality of that pure, safe love and then pure, sheer terror and fear and feelings of complete unworthiness when she tried to leave. And I reached up and I, I literally said, don't leave me, mommy. And she said she stayed. But in that moment, the fear that I felt of being abandoned was it was not only any fear that I have felt in my life or anything that happened to me in my childhood, which I'm sure I experienced. It was, a, I felt the collective loss of that safety that babies feel if they experience any sort of abandonment. Um, and that's something that I am very uh, passionate about even before this happened. Um, I at least the parenting style that I have and the one that I write about. Um, I'm very, very like, I don't use like using the word attachment parenting because I think attachment, as you will find out, is um, not necessarily always healthy. Uh, but I, the idea that a newborn baby, when it comes into the world, its mother is God. In the sense that everything that that is all they know that is all they see that's all that they can really grasp onto is mother and if they lose that connection or they feel unsafe or they feel unloved they feel that they are not necessarily going to always be safe it completely completely changes and alters the way that we relate to ourselves, the way that we relate to God on any level, the way we relate to mother earth and the way that we relate to our biological mothers. And I felt it on such a visceral level, how deeply traumatizing experiences, especially when you're a newborn up to, you know, toddlerhood those experiences are to feel abandoned by your mother. Um, And I think, and it's really hard to reconcile the fact that abandonment in what most of us would think as far as like, Oh, like your mother, like literally leaves you is not the same as what abandonment feels like for a newborn. Like literally just having and it's, it's so hard as a mother because it's like, oh my gosh, like I've probably done these things. Um, and it's a it's lot of responsibility. Of, 
Yeah, it's sort of like how we, you know, within the wider like legal social culture, we put the bar for for the word rape at like back alley, like stranger, mm. you know, but it's really there's a lot, a lot of a lot like the bar is much lower and there's a lot of wuzziness in there. Mm. And same with abandonment, like a bit, get, abandoning your baby in a dumpster is like that's what we think of. But then yeah. there's a lot there's a the bar is actually much lower for the feelings of abandonment and like mm. what it means. And especially in a newborn who has no true concept of like what life is, what the world is. So for us, leaving a baby crying in another room, we are well aware we're right here. We're in the other room and they're there and they, and we know that, but they don't. And they have just come into this world that they know nothing about. It's basically, they're having a psychedelic trip coming into the world because everything is this new reality that they've never experienced nothing makes sense to them. And I experienced that when I was fighting and it was like, this must be what babies feel like. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And when you have this one, this one connection to safety and that connection is pulled away from you. And even time, time doesn't make sense to you. So if there are a way, and it, it sounds really like hyper uh, vigilant when I say it, because it's like, Oh, like, you know, you, nobody can be there 24 seven. And that's true. Um, but I think that it's really pushed. The boundaries are so pushed in our parenting culture now, um, that abandonment, even if you don't think that that's something that your child has experienced, we push the boundaries so much in our society now that pretty much every child has experienced feelings of abandonment pretty much every child has experienced feelings of unworthiness of love, of um, disconnection, of fear of not having their needs met. And that, if it's done to an extent, which I really believe that a lot of the parenting advice out there uh, is complying with, is recommending, we're really, really having a lot of traumatized children growing up in a world that they don't feel safe. They don't feel that their needs will be met. They feel like they are not unconditionally loved. They feel abandoned by what their definition of God is, which is, you know, their mother and many times father as well. Um, and that lays the pavement for our relationship with ourselves and with who we ever we decide to feel God is in our life and with the original mother, which is mother earth. Um, so that connection that we lose through these experiences when we're babies with our mother is, is the microcosm of the larger picture of how we relate to the planet that we're on and ourselves and our spirituality and the higher, uh, power that is all around us. And it's, it makes sense that we would not be respecting the earth now. And we don't know that the earth wants to provide for us and will unconditionally provide for us if we just allow her to. Instead, we have this fear and this lack that she won't give, she won't be there for us when we need her because of that initial trauma that we felt when we were babies. And now we need to extract, we need to control, we need to take uh, because we're, we never were taught that we could rely on that unconditional giving and having our needs met. That, that was sense. a really long. Yeah. And I think, you know, just something to chime that I'd like to chime in on is like the, I would, 
I would remove the hedging language that you had about, um, I think every child in this Western culture is experiencing abandonment, fear, um, and a lot of pain and is severely traumatized. It's just a matter of to what degree and are there healthy ways of coping and managing that trauma? Um, because I think like, unless, and, and like, maybe I'm a little out there on this, but I think that there's this, um, we have this concept of the nuclear family and that is a broken family. Like there, there needs to be more allo parents. They're like, it, the the love of a mother isn't just from the biological mother like having like within a, a an intact uh, tribal community there would be multiple women feeding every child mm-hmm. and that's the idea that like love does not come flowly does not flow from one person and so when you are separated mm-hmm. from that one person then you experience the abandonment whereas if you feel all the love from all of these different people one person can leave and that's fine you know and you'll mm-hmm. still have all of this love and it'll flow in this way to you. And uh, I don't think, I just think we're a very broken culture and it's, this is sort of the, the downstream effects of it. And Absolutely. yeah, and it's just a matter of getting to figuring out like, how do you kind of fix little things here or there and try to rebuild from there? Because it's just not mm-hmm. like the, the one, like the, the two parents doing it all is not a realistic bar. It's just mm-hmm. impossible. And especially if, if both of them or one, even just one of them is working, it's just not, there's not enough. Uh, th- it's just impossible to to do that for all, like, especially if you have more than one child. My goodness. <laughs> oh, exactly. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because as I'm describing this, it's it would be so easy for like a mother to take, to, you know, think, oh, this is all my fault. And I think there are a lot of things that mothers could be doing differently. And that's a conversation for a whole other time. Um, but it's also totally unrealistic to expect mothers to be able to do everything. And yeah, it's sort that of like, is, it's sort of like a zebra feeling guilty for the fact that they don't have access to savannas when they're locked in a zoo. Mm. It's like, you can't blame the zebra. You have to blame the zookeepers. Like there's, it's mm. not, it's a, at a level higher than, than, you know, and there's still things that a zebra can do, but there's at the, at the end of the day, it's like, unless the zebra's on the mm. savanna, that's, they're still in a zoo. Yeah, and I think that that is like a huge um, societal issue, uh, especially with maternity leave. Like the U.S. is awful with maternity leave. Um, So it really puts mothers and fathers into this like, it really backs them into a corner. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to stay home and my husband works from home. So we have a really good situation. Um, but I think one, the quote unquote establishment, the recommendations that they give for new parents are totally ass backwards. Um, I, I think that it really is fostering this complete traumatization of children in a lot of ways. Um, and really almost trying to disintegrate the attachment that mothers have with their children. And I don't know, I'm not going to get into weird, uh, like, uh, theories and about that, but, um, I, and because I'm especially, never mind, I'm not going to get into that. I could go totally deep into like consumerism and trying to create little consumers because they, but anyway, uh, I digress. So let me, um, let me pivot this question. So we <laughs> talked a lot about the, the experience, some of the experiences that you had within the ceremony. Um, but like, would you give us like a quick 
like two minute, five minute, like spiel about like the like hundred foot view of what does what does a ceremony look like? Like what is oh, yeah. getting there? Uh, what is that like? Uh, what is the actual ceremony itself? What is the after? You know, just so people have a context. You know, they they hear okay, you yeah. deep in the ceremony, but you know, like what happens before, during, and after? You know. Okay. Okay. Well, so ayahuasca is a traditional plant medicine of the Amazon, and it has traditionally been used in um, in ceremonies uh for for these traditional cultures to commune with their spirituality with their with their god i'm using the word god a lot um but yeah so it's it's a it has psychedelic properties so similar on the lines of you know mushrooms or psilocybin and peyote Kind of, so a lot of people have heard pay, of peyote, I think, in the West, Western mm-hmm. society, or at least in the U.S. So it's kind of like the the Amazon's version of peyote, but quite a bit more intense. Um, so it is, I believe, as far as I've read, it's like the second strongest uh, hallucinogenic, uh, hallucin- or uh, psychedelic medicine known to man, um, right behind I don't something else, but. I can't remember the name of, but, um, but basically it is used to. So, 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 so zoom, zoom even forward. Like what was, what was like the the lead up to your ceremony? What was like, how did you sit in ceremony? And then what was the, like the processing after the ceremony? Okay, cool. Um, so I did it with a shaman here in Mexico who, speaks mostly only Spanish. Um, (laughs) Luckily, there were translators. So because it was during the day, basically, you follow a fairly restrictive diet, which I had already been doing before I even decided to to go to ayahuasca. So you follow that, which helps you kind of cleanse yourself and prepare yourself for the medicine. And we drove kind of into the jungle and walked down this path all the way. So we were really in the middle of the jungle. with a fire and we put our little yoga mats all around the fire and we're sitting outside and um you drink it uh so we kind of went through the pre-ceremony and the shaman explained everything that was going to happen and we sort of set a group intention uh for that ceremony and as we all kind of went one by one to go sit and receive the medicine um we would take the cup and the shaman would bless it and he would bless us. And we would speak or silently speak our intentions into the medicine. And my intention was simply to receive the medicine fully and to reconnect with mother earth. I did that for sure. So I took the medicine and um, we all sit around and just kind of wait for it to happen. And the shaman's playing music it's really beautiful you just sort of you sit I um I put something over my eyes so it was a little bit darker and I just meditated and um initially just was hit with a lot of intense emotion uh but nothing psychedelic I was just really overwhelmed with a lot of different um joyful emotion I felt so much joy so much love like there was no other feeling but joy and love uh in that beginning part before the psychedelic part hit and then I ended up going up for a second cup uh, about an hour and a half later, and that's when shit got real. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I um, you basically you just 
have this, everybody's is different too. Um, mine was extremely, extremely deep, extremely intense. Most people or a lot of people are able to at least like walk around or like get to the bathroom if they need to. Um, I was pretty much out of my body for a majority of the time, uh, would not have been able to move myself anywhere. Um, and, and then eventually you just come out of it and you're sitting there and everybody's out of their trip, out of their journey. And about how we, long is, was yours? Um, I took my first cup at around nine 30 in the morning and I was like fully recovered, uh, at 4 PM. Okay. So it was, it was a long, it was all day. Yeah. Um, and I only had two cups because when he offered for people to take a third cup, I was not even, I wouldn't have even noticed that he was offering it. Um, and I definitely didn't need a third cup, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and then it's, it's over and you're trying to understand what just happened. Um, and you sort of, I cried a lot as far as my processing experience. Um, I did not purge. Uh, so a lot of times ayahuasca, uh, will make you throw up or some people experience diarrhea. Uh, I had none of that. Um, during Except for a few days later, it sounds like <laughs> for a few days later, it got, it caught up to me. Um, so I just, I got out of it and I, I felt so be, I haven't explained the whole experience, but, um, when I got out of it after a lot of other things happening, um, in, in the end I died, uh, I Surprise, fun, fact. <laughs> fun fact, I died, um, which we can talk about later once we talk about some of the mm -hmm. other prompts. But um, I just came out of it and I was just so happy <laughs> to be alive because uh, I really didn't think that I would be coming back or be alive. And uh, I just started crying so much from all the things that I experienced and all the feelings that I had during the experience. And we all sort of shared and some people spoke Spanish, some people spoke English, but there were translators. So it was, there was a little bit of like the language barrier um, to really fully understand people's experiences. But um, yeah, we, uh, we kind of all just sat and shared and somebody came and I just like sobbed into their shoulder uh, for a while just cause it was so overwhelming everything that had happened um and yeah and then we just packed up and went home <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, two two clarifying questions um okay. uh one is like what was the ratio do you think of like latino to like white to like white you know people coming in you know what i mean okay yeah um i would say probably about half and half okay Maybe and how many people in ceremony mexican um it was about 15 of us. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's like a mid-sized group. It's not, a lot of people recommend smaller, but I thought it was like the perfect, it was a really good vibe. At least all the people that were there were like, didn't have any like weird energy. So it was very, it was a very comfortable uh, mm -hmm. energy. To the good. Group. And uh, how long was that drive? Like when did you, so if you, things were starting to get normal at four, when, when were you in the car and how long was that car ride? Oh uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah i was so glad that i wasn't the one driving i was like i don't know how you're driving us back right now because i'm still like what is going on um so we pro it was probably only like a 35 40 minute drive um, okay. so it wasn't bad it wasn't far um and yeah i just 
sat there and kind of like processed while we drove home. Um, I'm so excited though. Huh? Sorry, after the sunset? Is that yeah, was it, were you driving as the sunset after the sun? Like, was it dark already or? No, so I got home and it was still light out. Oh, very um, cool. Yeah, so it was all light, all, all day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, so um, we talked a lot about, um, you know, you, you responded with I am God, creator, and I think there was a third thing, but I forget what it was. Uh, do you happen to recall? Everything. Everything. And I think we kind of <laughs> we, we explored around it enough and i think we're going to go deeper into it is there anything else on that list that you want to hit before we talk about uh before i die no nope. all right how do you finish that next prompt before i die i want before i die i want to know and live the truth of who i am which i already t- described who i am mm-hmm. and to have faith in my soul's purpose and to truly follow that path. Okay. So um, my first question would be, is, is, that, is, is any of that different than what you're doing right now? Or is it a continuation of what you're currently doing? I think that there are definitely times when my ego can step in and throw little uh, speed bumps in my way. But for the most part, I truly, for the first time in my life, feel that I am following that purpose and I am aware of it and I'm connected to it. And I have not just faith and trust in the path, but in myself that I'm capable of following that path. Um, And that is really quite an amazing feeling. And so, yeah, so I think for the most part, that is how I'm living my life right now, aside from the occasional ups and downs of forgetting for a little bit and then having to come back and say, okay, recenter, come back to this truth that I feel so deeply in my heart um, that, yes, sometimes my, uh, my head can get me a little distracted. But yeah, I think for the most part, that's, the, that's where I'm where I'm headed and that's where I, where I am right now. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I think that's where I think I, I, from what, from what little, you know, we've, we've connected, you know, we kind of bip in and out. Uh, but I think uh, it seems like you're, you're doing the good work and uh, mm. you're, you're doing the, th- you're doing the thing you should do. Uh, and so like, what does that, like, what does that future look like? Cause I know you, you, you described that you're, you're writing a book, you're, you're, you're doing this online uh, work. And so like, what, what does that mean to really like embody this, um, this motherhood and, and also to mm-hmm. be listening to your, to your soul and your spirit? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I, even before this, I had, I'd been writing, um, freelance writing for some parenting blogs mm-hmm. and I was sharing so, some sort of my own stuff on my own personal blog. Um, but I think that I was really censoring myself mm-hmm. and I didn't want to believe that I was because I felt like I still was fairly open and really like sharing a lot of the ideas and the thoughts that I had. Um, but I wasn't fully willing to step into it until I experienced it from a child's perspective and that for me was really where things clicked and I said okay this isn't just about like making parenting a little bit easier um 
and making, you know, helping your children, supporting your children to grow and to develop, it really is life or death for all of us because it has such a deep impact on how we all really, um, how we all interact with life, not just our own lives, but the lives of others and the lives of all the creatures on the planet. And so it took on this whole new meaning for me of not only wanting to help support children in their own, in their development on a spiritual level, on a physical level, on an emotional level, but, and wanting to help parents because the reason that we're not able to do that for our children is because we didn't have, we weren't, uh, we didn't have that for ourselves. So it starts with healing ourselves and understanding ourselves so that we can do that for our children. And I realized that it wasn't just a, it was, that was just the microcosm. And to do this work, I had to realize that the higher purpose was to help the planet and everyone on like a global scale. Um, and that that's really where it starts is this new generation is with children because they're the ones who are going to grow up to be the stewards of the planet. And I had always been like, kind of, you know, I always tried to be conscientious of the planet and I would, you know, use reusable water bottles rather than plastic and I recycled and, but especially during the experience, um, that I had where I eventually as, you know, later on in the journey, I became mother earth and I felt her pain and I felt the suffering that she feels. And I felt the suffering of all of her children, uh, and humans and animals and plants and trees and everything. Um, it was so deep and intense that there's, it's, I could never forget it. There's no way that I could turn my back on what I experienced. Um, but I also experienced how much love Mother Earth has for us. She wants to provide for us. She wants us to be abundant and healthy and happy. And uh, it really, like, it really was heartbreaking. Like, it, and I speak about her as a person because I truly, like, I feel that that, that Mother Earth has a soul. And to experience what she's experiencing right now on the planet as her was incredibly profound, uh, deeply disturbing at the same time. Um, and I, it just woke me up to the bigger picture of the work that I want to be doing and the work that I am doing. And uh, it took on this whole new meaning. So I feel like I'm extra um, motivated and inspired to do the work that I'm doing. And it made me realize there's no place for censoring the truth, at least as I want to express it, if it's going to make the change that needs to happen in the world. So uh, for me, that is sharing completely authentically and uh, not in, in a condemning way, but in a way that shows what the alternative could be and what we all could really create together if we came together to create it. And like you said, we are so separated. Um, and I truly believe that that starts with being, feeling separate, uh, when we're children and not feeling that oneness and, um, yeah. So what it looks like to me is sharing all of this and hopefully it makes a difference in some people's lives. And then hopefully that continues on and on. And that's why I want to write this book. And the medicine pretty much told me, write this 
experience as a book. So I said, okay, I guess I'll do that. Um, and I am also creating an e-magazine where I'm bringing people who, uh, quote unquote experts, uh, to come in and share how to practice. Like you said, like, okay, well, how do we practically start bringing this into our lives when we're living in a society in a way that really is like against us? Uh, we're working against what society has really uh, given us the only choice to live that way uh, for a lot of people, at least. Um, so how do you practically bring this into your life? How do you practically support a child in their spiritual development? Like there are so many questions that people would have when they, learn what's happening uh like okay well if this is negatively affecting children and myself how do I change that what do I do to make improvements so that's what I really want to bring to people is like I'm not just here to tell you like oh we're all traumatized and that's why the world's uh you know is falling apart it's okay well here's what's happening and how do we move out of this so that we can make the change that the world so desperately needs and I know that you have a background in coaching and fitness and wellness. And uh, I, uh, I wonder, have you thought, because, you know, the book is, uh, you're going to touch, uh, you know, in an ideal world, you'll touch a lot of people, but a little bit by reading the book. Mm-hmm. And whereas coaching is much more of that, like you touch one person, but really deeply. Um, and have you, like, do you know, would you do a mix of both? Like, have you like, really like trying to get this change out in the world? How do you imagine it in like 10 years? Where do you imagine? Okay. Like, how do you imagine that model? I like talking about this because it's exciting. Um, yeah, so I've, I can't say that I have the whole thing visualized because mm-hmm. I really am open to like taking the guidance as it comes and just following the path as it's shown to me um, because that's how it got me here so far and it seems to have worked pretty well. But yes, I do see myself doing more one-on-one or at least small group work um, because I think that that's really where you can make a deep impact, at least in one family's life. Uh, and sometimes it is hard to translate information or to translate advice into your specific situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I really would love, uh, as you know, my husband, Mike, he, um, he's a healer as well as uh, an intuitive therapist. And so he does a lot of kind of like the, the more tangible and like getting in there and clearing and helping people with their own traumas to release so much of the, uh, the stuff that's really bogging them down. Um, so I have this vision where I'll write the book and the book really walks you through the whole journey. And I'm literally just describing the journey and then sharing the insights and sharing sort of what I glean from it and hoping that other people can also get insights based on, um, understanding the process. Uh, And then I would eventually love to have a healing center where people and families can come and go through this really intensive um, healing process where basically we recreate the experience that I had, but not necessarily through doing ayahuasca, through other healing modalities and through a really intensive, um, just a process. So I would, I want, and I actually have a friend who's, coming to visit, um, here in Playa, um, in a few weeks. And she's kind of going to be our like first beta tester. Cause I have it. We both have talked about it. We have this whole process we want to bring people through to basically what I call the, the mother wound, um, 
to heal through that on a really deep integrated level. And when I say mother wound, I'm not necessarily saying just solely biological mother. I think that that is where a lot stems from, but, um, the mother wound that we have that's um, disconnecting us from what I consider our collective mother, which is Mother Earth, um, and just bringing people through that journey so that they can experience healing on all those different levels and um, come out the other side, hopefully feeling how I feel and wanting to commune and connect with, um, with other people and with Earth and all her creations. So. Good stuff. I can tell you're really jazzed and it's just going to mm. be a very interesting thing to see, you know, like in, as the years progress, how is the, how are things going along and how does this vision of a, of a physical place where this healing occurs, uh, how does that come to fruition? Cause I, I'm in, I'm in the process also of, of a very similar, but different, different, you know, same idea, different shade of mm. uh, how to, how to do this work. And it's uh it's an exciting time and hopefully, you know, we'll, be able to kickstart some stuff by, uh, by the time it's actually, you know, worth kickstarting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, that's a whole other thing is like collaboration too. Um, none of us can do this work alone. So the more people who are willing to come together and collaborate and see how we can improve, uh, that's, that's where the magic's going to happen. So, yeah. I agree entirely. So, um, I think we talked a lot about what does that, what do those think, what do those ideas mean of before you die, of, of listening and, and truly uh, being in tune with your, with your, with your journey and, and with your spirit. Um, are there, is there anything else on the list that you think we should uh, cover before we hit the uh, when I die? Hmm. Yeah, I think just really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. As far as I just, I hope that my life can be a really great reflection of living joyfully and lovingly. Um, and it's not always easy for sure, but yeah, I think that that that's really what it's all about. And that's in truth, what they're really, they're really the only thing that is real. Um, cause I think everything else is just a construct of our ego and, um, after you realize what the ego truly is and you see what the possibilities are without that ego. Um, I think that that is really why we're here is to be able to step into that higher level of unconditional love. And um, yeah, so it's a, it's a daily practice for sure. <laughs> it is because you know, some days you'll hit the mark, some days you'll miss it and that's fine. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And just knowing that every moment you can choose to come back. So it, not living in guilt or anything like that and just knowing, okay, move forward, move forward. Uh, so yeah, super important. Good stuff. Uh, how do you finish that next prompt when I die? I want. Okay. When I die, I want to be fearless and I want to release my loved ones from the attachment that I feel for them. And I want to know that they are at peace at releasing that attachment from me. Okay. So are there, so we've talked about the difficulty of releasing that attachment during your recent ayahuasca ceremony. I wonder, are there, other examples in your life mm -hmm. of people not being able to release uh, that attachment in in their actual death 
Mm, yes. So this was a really um, profound experience for me uh, because in the past year, um, I have lost, well, I lost two grandmothers and my husband lost a grandmother and a step-grandfather. So, and that was just in like the second half of last year. So oh, it was very, um, a lot in a row. And all of them, except for Mike's grandmother, uh, were suffering from fairly uh, intense dementia uh, and Alzheimer's. And it was, it was very, very interesting to watch all of the processes that each of them went through. And one of the things that I noticed the most was those who seemed to have the most ingrained like attachments and their from their loved ones um who were not accepting of death and really trying to control death um that see the process was drawn out for so long so much longer um so i can give you an example um so mike's grandmother uh, my husband's grandmother who was very close to uh, her daughter, who is my mother-in-law, um, she, it was very quick, very sudden. She was out driving around one day. And then, you know, a few days later was in the hospital and ended up passing within a few days. And so watching that process and she was, um, she was, I believe, well, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, watching that process, uh, and seeing the, her daughter go through the acceptance process and giving her permission to die was extremely profound. And that was the one thing that I saw in all these experiences was that they were all waiting for permission. And not just like a, like a, Verbal. It's like a very deep. It has. They. You had to feel it, and so Mike's grandmother, her, you know, his mom gave her permission, and within, and this was for the grandmother and the step grandfather. So it was a couple um, who died within a few months of each other, and so it was Cindy, my mother-in-law, who was with both of them when they passed, and it was only when she said, "It's okay, you can go." that they passed and it was the same for my two grandmothers, but it was very, um, it was very difficult for them to get, for her, the children to get to that point. And it was a lot of struggle and a lot of holding on and it was drawn out for so much longer. And um, I experienced that in my ayahuasca journey where I was dying and I had to reconcile the fact that I needed to let go of my attachment to Luke and my son, which was a very difficult process for me. Um, but when I finally released my attachment to him, and I mean like released as in I had no even concept of him existing in my reality. Like I still was not able to fully allow myself to die until somebody gave me permission 
And so I was laying there and it was interesting because when I was laying there during my journey, I became my grandmother and I died through her. I lived her death through her eyes. And I was laying there and I would open my eyes every once in a while and see people sitting around me and smiling and just giving me this love and support in this transition. But I couldn't let go until somebody actually, and I literally looked at the shaman and I said, is it okay? And as soon as he said, okay, all the fear of death, because really death isn't scary. It's the attachment that you have to this life that is the scary part of losing that attachment because death actually feels really nice um it's warm it's cozy it's inviting it was the earth was just like just hugging me and I felt such an urge to let go and like allow myself to die but I couldn't allow myself until somebody gave me that like permission to say let go of your attachments we release you. So I learned how important it is to feel like you are being released because otherwise you feel so much responsibility. You feel um, so, so much attachment to the people in your life, especially as a mother or a father. And to have your children be there with you and tell you it's okay. I'm going to be okay. You're going to be okay. That is the, to me, the most profound gift you can give to somebody who is dying um, is the gift of release and the gift of permission to go. And as soon as I received it, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. I just let go. And, and death was actually really, really beautiful. And um, I think that that's a gift that we owe the people in our lives to give to them uh, when they're dying. So for my, I only had a one day on the hospice floor at uh, one of the hospitals nearby, and it has a very interesting, uh, you know, it was staffed by wonderful humans. And one thing that I noticed is it has a very a vibe that is very similar in a very different way to a labor and delivery floor. Like there are these families, they're kind of milling around, they're all kind of waiting, maybe they're waiting for other families to arrive. You know, it's like very much like the same thing as a labor and delivery floor, just different. And, um, yeah, one thing that one of the, one of the physicians there told me was that she said like a lot of the work, uh, like people will live as long as they need to for the work to get done. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, sometimes that's a really long time. And sometimes it's like right when the last family member gets there, it's then it's time. And it's, yeah. a, it can be a very, it's, it's a, I haven't, you know, like, um, the, a belief or a, a trust in something greater than just science is hard to find in in like western medicine mm -hmm. but i find that those that are closest to the those that die in hospice and palliative medicine they're like yes i don't know what's going on but there's something going on mm -hmm. and we're just kind of along for the ride and like almost without a doubt even the most like surly of like a hospice physician will be like yeah something i don't know there, there's something mm -hmm. bigger going on and we don't know what's happening but we're just kind of like along for the ride yeah yeah for sure and and I think that that, I think a lot of people think that there isn't a place for that in medicine, but to me, it's like, that's where it should be is in mm -hmm. medicine because you're caring for these souls, these people. Um, and I think that they're, I mean, look at any traditional, um, 
you know, medicine woman is usually also like the shaman who connects with the spirits. Like it's a very integrated, um, you know, profession or whatever you want to, whatever they were. But, um, usually it's, you're taking care of the body and the soul and you see it as a connection. And, um, I think that might be, I'm hoping where Western medicine will head, uh, it'd be cool someday. <laughs> uh, cause I think that it would make things a lot easier. Uh, if, and there's, that's where the science is headed to, right? Uh, maybe not necessarily on a spiritual level, but at least on like the emotional body. And we're recognizing like, there is not just the physical body. There is the emotional body. There is the, uh, the, uh, the aura that is, you know, we know with science that that's there and there's energetics involved. Uh, it's not just this like machine that we're, you know, robots in. There's so much more going on and we know how emotions and affect the body. So I'm, I'm hoping that as this becomes more mainstream that people are able to, you know, that that's able to seep into the medical profession. Maybe, maybe you can be one of them, <laughs> one of the good ones. Um, but yeah. And I think that we would see so much so much more from the medical community if we were, if, you know, if it was able to recognize that, especially in, uh, in birth and in death. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And so I want to pivot this back to directly to you, because I think that there's some interesting questions that I can ask you, um, about your death and your dying process, because, um, you know, it, like, it's easy to talk about the abstraction of letting go, but it's also, it's much harder to talk about the specifics of it. And so, um, I think the, unless, like, unless you had another experience in the past month since the ayahuasca ceremony of separating yourself from Lucan, has there been? It's actually interesting that you asked that. Um, because during the ayahuasca experience, I, I mean, I had so much like, oh my God, I can't die. I have a son. Can't believe I did this. I, like, I truly believed that I was like, physically dying. Um, and when, and the shaman literally had to come and sing to me and he was just saying over and over, like, over oh, your attachments. And as he was singing it to me, I was relaxing a little bit and I was trying to visualize Lucan's face and it was just like getting further and further away. And I would try to pull it back and it would get a little further until there was just no concept of him. And so that was 100% the most, the biggest sticking point for me in my surrender to the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, but after I did that and I came out of it, uh, the medicine really does kind of stay with you for quite a long. I mean, it's still with me, but for at least the first, the week after, um, it was still in me and I would, every night have like a little kind of like mini, mini journey. Um, and it was interesting because all three of us, so my husband, after he did his ayahuasca experience, he had the same, like the fever and the purging and the really bad headache. Um, and then I ended up getting it. So Lucan, my son, two nights after my journey, Lucan had his, um, he, he developed a fever. Uh, and I am quite natural mind, naturally minded. I, uh, tend to believe that a fever is actually a good thing. Um, 
within its limits. And so, you know, when he's only had, this was his second fever ever. Um, so he got this fever and I said, okay, well, it's nighttime, you know, we'll put you to bed and see how you feel in the morning and I'll, you know, keep an eye on you. And I co-sleep with him. Um, so when I went to bed, he came in and I was nursing him and um, I was holding him next to me, skin to skin, because that's really good when they have a fever. And I was kind of like in that in-between state where I'm starting to fall asleep, but I'm still a little, a little lucid. And the medicine decided this was the time for me to have a little bit of a journey. Um, and so I'm holding him. And granted, like when I say that, like I don't want people to think I'm like tripping out on psychedelics when I'm co-sleeping with my son. Like that's not how it is. Uh, it's just it's almost like a dream, right? So it comes in sort of like a dream and I'm holding him and I'm feeling the heat radiating off of him and just something inside of me just said, you have to let him die. And there's an initial like feeling of panic because as you know, as a parent, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure June, I don't know if he's had a fever yet, but at some point he will. Um, just when something's a little wrong or they get sick, you're, you, there's a little part of you that has like this really deep fear that they're going to die. And that's just, that's just what parenting feels like <laughs> sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm holding him and I, something just comes over me and says, you have to let him die. And I'm holding him and I feel the same way that I felt when I was dying during my ayahuasca journey where I was being held. So I became mother earth absorbing him as he died and he disintegrated into a million particles and just became everything the same way that I did when I was dying and just literally just dissolved into my arms and I, I, you know, I experienced this and just felt him for who he was, which was this eternal soul that, um, that was more than just this physical incarnation or, uh, incarnation. And I, at that point, I just like kind of like dozed off and fell asleep. And when I woke up, um, his fever had broken and he had this like one poop and (laughs) then was totally fine. Like it was like, just like that. And it was, he was doing some purging too, so that he could purge the unhealthy attachments that we've already created in our relationship. Um, and it was really, really beautiful and powerful because no, obviously I'm not like, Oh yeah, I don't care if my kid dies, like go play in traffic, like whatever. Like, of course I care and I'm going to protect him and I love him, but it was this deeper lesson, lesson of understanding and honoring who he really is, which is this soul that is here for his own purpose and his own, to live his own path. And that the only way that I can respect him and support him in that is to release any of my like irrational egoic fears about his mortality. And that was a really powerful lesson for me, uh, which was, yes, you, you might be able to accept and when you're being forced to under ayahuasca to release your attachment to him so that you can die. But can you release your attachment to him? Like you were saying, like one of us is going to die first. Um, and I used to always say to my husband, like, I hope I die first. Cause I don't want to live here if you're dead. So it was almost doing that for my son so that I could honor and respect his path and love him uh, as the soul that he is rather than just like this 
construct of you are my son, you must be this uh, role for me. And so I could see him as an equal and respect him as the uh, soul that he is. So it was really, it was intense, but it was, it was really powerful. Yeah. I think that there's, um, there's a lot there. And I wonder in that sensation, uh, was it like to, to ask it explicitly, like, did you, do you feel like you were able to give him that permission to die? Yes. And the only way that I could have done that was because it happened so soon after mm-hmm. my journey. Um, and I just knew it, I just accepted it. And when I say like, it's not that I necessarily like consciously thought he was dying. It was much more of like a subconscious. Mm-hmm. So obviously like if I was laying in bed and I thought that my son was dying, like on a physical level, I would have done something. <laughs> uh, so I don't want people to think like, Oh yeah, I just knew he was dying. And, you know, um, it was, it was, it was just a very, um, and you've, you've been on, you've, you've, you've uh, done ayahuasca. So you know that there are things that, you know, aren't quote unquote, like, aren't like actually happening. Um, but it's, it's happening on a very deep subconscious soul level where you're accepting and healing, um, healing things without having to be like, Oh yeah, my child's actually dying in my arms. It's just, it's a feeling. It's a knowing. Um, it's a, it's a lot of like learning through metaphor and yes. like, not like, like how do you make a micro thing, a macro thing? It's a lot of that. Yeah. And I wonder, so uh, before we transition to the final prompt, I want to ask a hard question of, um, you know, like you have that 35 minute drive home and um, after the ceremony. And I wonder if you had gotten to a car accident and you were on, you know, in this random road in Mexico by, on the jungles um, and you were alone and dying. Is Do you think that you at that point or even at now in this point, you know, not, not in the immediate afterglow, but do you think that you would need an outside person to give you that permission to go? Or do you think that you, at this point, having understood what it means that the, the whole like emotional, uh, spiritual process of dying, do you think you'll be able to give yourself that permission? It's a really good question. And I'm really <laughs> glad you asked that because I have not meditated on that yet. Um, <laughs> I have thought about, you know, like, oh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, like once you die, you're, you have the ego death, like you lose your fear of dying. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, I have not lost, I've lost my fear of what death means and what happens when you die. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't still, you know, feel the responsibility and feel like I want, (laughs) I still want to live. Um, so I don't, (sighs) what do you think? You don't need to have an answer for it. It's a tough question to answer. Yeah. I think I don't think I would have needed permission, especially then. Um, and I don't think I would need it now. I think the reason that a lot of people do need it, and I've, I've thought about this a lot, about how I'm so glad that I've basically died halfway, like partially through my life, is because I felt like I was reborn, but into a world, into a reality that is so different, where I don't, I can live from that place after already having experienced death where most people haven't. So I guess when I say that people need permission to die, it's probably for the people who have not experienced what it is to die beforehand. Um, so initiation, like once you go through the initiation, it's like, okay, you're kind of like, you are self, Mm -hmm. you you can kind of do this yourself. Like you can, you don't need that extra guiding hand. 
Yeah. So for those who have not experienced that, I think it's extremely important. Obviously not everybody gets that because some people, they do get into car accidents and die before like there's somebody there to just be like, okay, you can go. But I think, um, especially for elderly people who are just dying because they're getting old and that's the process of life. Um, I think that their death really is a lesson in surrender and it is not only for them, but a lesson for the people who love them uh, to surrender to life's journey and to the cycle of life. And I think that's why a lot of people end up holding on through a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, So it really depends on what your purpose here was and what the purpose of your death is. Um, But I think that for me personally, especially knowing that I am doing everything I can to support my son in living at a higher consciousness level and the way that I will teach him about death uh, and the way that my husband will teach him about death. If I die die earlier than he can, um, I have so much faith in knowing that, that no matter what happens to me, he is on the, he will be supported in whatever he needs. So I don't think that I would need permission to die. I would want to die. I don't, I don't want to die, but I don't need somebody to give me permission because I know that really death is just another way to transition into being born again. So, yeah. Good stuff. How do you finish that next prompt? After I die, I want. After I die, I want probably just do it all over again. <laughs> and I think that's what's going to happen anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I just want to have another adventure, I guess. You know, um, can you imagine wh- what that next adventure would look like or feel like? Do you know, would it be as another human? Would it be as something, well, as something entirely different in like, you know, like what, what do you imagine that to look or feel like? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. I don't know that I can imagine it. Um, and we could easily get into different universes, different types of beings. Like, you, there's a lot that you could explore on this mm-hmm. topic. And I am truly, honestly, especially now, open to any possibility. There's nothing that I would say is impossible. Um, I, but I think that. As far as my work, as a soul, I feel very connected to this planet, this earth. Um, And I think there's a reason that I'm here. I think there's a reason we're all on this planet at this time. Um, And I can't imagine that the work that I'm supposed to do is only going to happen in this one lifetime. Uh, I think there's a lot of work to do here. And if that truly is the purpose of my soul, then I think I'll probably be coming right back here maybe not in this obviously not in this body um and but i think that i will be back on this earth probably as a human um again maybe not always but again (laughs) good stuff 
And I wonder, um, so that's, that sort of would, that would be your experience in after death. Um, I wonder what do you imagine for the future in the deep future in the tens of thousands or um, hundreds of thousands of years? What, what are some things that you want after you die? Hmm. I mean, the possibilities are endless, right? Um, I think that my ability to perceive what my soul is capable of or what the options are is so repressed like I don't think I could ever possibly imagine but what I would hope you know what I would want for myself is happiness and joy and love and oneness and to feel to feel that that everything really is in order I guess. And I, I think I'm scraping the surface of feeling that now, but just to know that there is, there's no real coincidence and to see it from the bigger picture, right. Um, to not just experience it on this level, but to end up in a place or in a level of consciousness where I'm, can see the big picture, the macrocosm, and just know it and be it and live it. Um, and whatever that looks like, whether I become an alien, or <laughs> I become just a star, or I don't know what, the, what that possibility is. But I think, I think just living what I feel I'm living in faith now, to live it in experience. I, I guess I experience it. But it's it's different when you're here as a human. It's it's a lot of going on faith and trust, and I think it'll be cool. It would be cool to at least for a while before I decide to like go do go be a human or go be in some other incarnation to um, to just really like be it. Um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, good. <laughs> I, I got you. I got you. And then I I know you said that you have a a deep connection to this planet. And I wonder what do you imagine or hope for for this planet in that deep future? <sighs> I, I hope for this planet to come back to the experience of being honored and respected and nourished uh, so that we can receive that honor and respect and nourishment back. And to be honest, the more I learn about what's going on in this world, the harder it is for me to feel that I, as one person, can really make a difference. And I think that's how a lot of people feel um, because it really is. Uh, horrifying and especially living in where I live um in Mexico it's the pollution is just a nightmare so it's it's really I think it'd be really it's really easy to get lost in that and to feel hopeless um but if there's one thing that I learned it's that 
mother earth is extremely resilient does not need you only need to give her a little for her to really be able to um regrow and she you know i i don't believe that the story ends with humans destroy the earth and it is forever inhabitable and it i just i don't i refuse to believe that that is where this story ends and I think that there's a huge awakening happening right now for people, um, maybe in small pockets right now, but it is coming, it's happening. And I believe that that is what will prevail because that's really what we all are on our deepest levels um, is compassion and love and uh, creation. So I think that we all really can create a different world and the earth wants us to, the earth wants to support us in that. And she'll, she'll come back stronger than ever, I hope. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think she will. So 10,000 years from now, I don't know what, where we'll be as far as like humanity and um, technologically, uh, but I believe that the earth will prevail and uh, we'll be glad that we started to work with her instead of against her. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder, is there anything else that you want uh, after you die? Hmm. No, I don't think so. I. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I want to give you the last few minutes, last few moments of this interview to address the audience directly, whether it is uh, you in 10 years while you're doing the cool work that you're doing, or maybe it is when, uh, Lucan can listen to this uh, while, uh, you know, as you're on your deathbed, or uh, mm-hmm. maybe it is as uh, some of your grandchildren are able to listen to this because they never really met you, um, or just somebody that's like, oh, this this cool Susie, she does a lot of cool writing, and I really want to hear more about her. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, the floor is yours to address the audience directly. Sure. Um, what I would want anybody who's listening to this to know is that. You are unconditionally loved. You are supported in every way possible that you could ever imagine. You have everything you need right inside of you. And I just would pray that you are able to open yourself up to this, to experience life as the heaven that it really is meant to be. because we really are all, we are all everything. We are all one. And it's so important, especially now, that we reawaken because this is not something new. This is something that we've sort of forgotten for a while, but um, that we are open to reawakening to that possibility to not necessarily just trusting that, oh, Susie told you that, you know, this is you know, about this, but to explore it for yourself and open up to the possibility that you can really create the life that you want. And that's why we're here is to be creators. And when we do that and we start understanding where that creative force comes from and that it really is coming from the earth, the universe, um, we can recognize that we we really need to respect and honor that within ourselves and within everybody else around us and within the earth that we call our 
collective home, um, it, it really will make a difference in your, so if you, if you're not necessarily all about like changing the planet and that's not where you're at right now, that's okay because it really can change your life. So if you're struggling right now or you're having a hard time, um, seeing your own divinity and recognizing the power that you have within open yourself up to the possibility that you are more than just this, this body walking around, that there is so much more power and potential within you, um, that your entire life can transform with the snap of a finger. When you truly choose to open yourself up to the possibilities that there is more to experience more to see, more to feel in this life. Um, and hopefully that translates eventually into recognizing that um, that the earth also is part of you and we really owe it to ourselves and to our fellow creations of the earth uh, and the earth herself to, to honor who we are and that is God and divine and souls that can really do and be and anything that they want. So yeah. <laughs> Good stuff, Susie. Thank you so much for uh, your time. This has been a really lovely uh, two hours of just chatting with you and catching up. And uh, yeah, I hope you had a blast. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. I know it was like a couple years in the in the making to get this to happen, <laughs> but I think. I think this was the right timing and I really appreciate you uh, opening up your, your space and your heart to receiving my message. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This has been Susie Marshausen on death. Okay. So for Romo questions, uh, what is your name and how do you spell it? Susie Marshausen. S-U-Z-I-E-M-A-R-S-C-H-H-A-U-S-E-N. I am sure that you've had to do that several times in your life. A billion times. Everyone's like, two H's? What's up with the two H's? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, just just a side note. I From watching Mackenzie change her name, I know that it is a nightmare to change your name as a lady. It is mm -hmm. not not a fun process. Yeah. Um, and then, Especially going from something so easy as like rainy to mm -hmm. this like ridiculous German last name. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, oh. Yeah. And um, why? So like when we were in high school together, you were like, I feel like I, I've, I've known like pre-Susie and then Susie, right? Like when did, yeah. when did you sort of make that transition? So it's so funny because I was always Susanna in mm -hmm. high school and like whole family calls me Susanna. And then I was Susanna through pretty much all of college. But then like people just started calling me Susie in college. And after we started our business, it just was like, we were working together and just like randomly, we were like, Susie and Mike, like Mike and Susie just like sounds better together. And then I was just like, screw it. I'll just change my name. Like I'll just start going by Susie. And it, I just like changed it on Facebook and was like, whatever, like people probably aren't going to call me. Susie like that I knew before and a lot of people don't but when we started traveling I just started introducing myself as Susie and it was really interesting because I felt like when we started traveling I really did sort of become a new person and I found 
a different part of myself or I uncovered um, who I was without a lot of the conditionings and things that I had from, you know, growing up and all of those things. And uh, it just kind of stuck. And I felt more like that than I did Susanna. So I I was like, well, I'm Susie now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing to have, like, like the the way that we'll have different names for different groups of people that we interact with and like how that like changes our whole mindset about like how I'm referred to. It's like very, very interesting. Like I know a lot of people in med school, they like to refer to me as Eugene and like growing up, I was like, I I much preferred huge. And so uh, it's very interesting. And so getting some of them to start calling me huge has been a nice process, but it's, yeah, it's a very interesting thing just to like have like a name, you know, it's just a name, but it is like a different persona with each name. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. And um, what is your age? 28. Excellent. And what is your gender identity and preferred set of pronouns? Female, she, I, she. (laughs) She, her, hers. (laughs) He, her, hers. I've never been asked that. But yeah, female, traditional female, he, her, she, her, hers. Yes. (laughs) There you go. And when I say home, what do you think of? Mm, uh, Family. Is it uh, Mike and Lucan right now? Is that, or is it like your your like your parents? Is it his parents? Is it where where everyone's together? Like, what do you mean, family? Um, my immediate family, so Mike and Lucan. Um, and that's a, it's interesting that you asked because I've recently sort of like reframed that because we would always be like, oh, when we get home, referring to like being in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and then we were like, that's not really like our home. Like our home is where we are. I don't want to always feel like my home is somewhere else so um we have recently been reframing that like home is wherever i'm with my fa- my immediate family and then we're you know just going and visiting in new hampshire or wherever mm-hmm. so yeah gotcha and then i guess is so new hampshire is no longer quote home is that correct yeah and yeah. then like right now are you building a home in playa del carmen like right now in mexico like uh or is it just because you three are there yeah, it's just because we're here. So because we we don't really like settle very long in places um, yet, at least, it just feels good to me to know that like I am home wherever I am and I don't have to feel like I have to have this like construct of like, oh, it's like a permanent home or like a house to feel like I'm home um Mm -hmm. because that's not really a way to live to like always feel like you're not home Mm -hmm. um so yeah so we aren't planning on staying here we're going to be going back to New Hampshire in May and Mm -hmm. um we'll be visiting and then wherever we decide to stay for a little bit longer will be our home until we decide to go somewhere else gotcha very cool uh what is something in the past six months that you have been proud of Hmm. I have made a lot of big changes in the past six months, uh, so it's hard to narrow down. But I think the biggest thing that I'm proud of is that I really stepped into my personal responsibility for my life. And that's something that I've kind of been like dipping my toes in and like, oh, yeah, totally, you know, take responsibility for everything in my life, the good, the bad, whatever it is. But it was easy when things weren't so good to be like, Oh no, never mind. I'm not responsible. Um, so just in the past couple months, um, I think the biggest thing was that I really accepted all responsibility for my life and to see just how things have shifted even in that short of a time, um, has been really, 
really uh, rewarding mm -hmm. and it makes me wish I did it sooner, but <laughs> we're all on our own journey and our own path. And um, yeah, so just knowing that I was am capable of doing what a lot of people go their whole lives without really accepting, uh, which is just that personal responsibility. So yeah. So I think I think I have an understanding of what that means um, because I think I've gone through something similar. Um, but to somebody who hasn't gone through that sh accepting a personal responsibility, like that, that doesn't mean much, you know? So like, yeah. what, like, how would you explain that? Like, what are the actionable differences of before accepting that personal responsibility and after accepting that personal responsibility? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to ask a lot of those tough questions. Yes. So okay. But <laughs> it. it helps me too. Um, so I guess for me, it was a lot of kind of going from like a victim mindset to, and I, I wasn't like this crazy, like, oh, you did this to me. But there's definitely that underlying victim mindset of like, oh, uh, why did this happen? Or, um, yeah, so it's really just about recognizing that no one's doing anything to you. Uh, nothing is doing anything to you. And that everything that's happening in your world is really created by you. And you have the power within you, uh, based on your actions, based on your thoughts, based on the work that you're willing to do to heal through any subconscious beliefs and subconscious traumas that are creating negative patterns in your life. And most of us go our whole lives kind of unaware of that and don't have the self-awareness to see where what's inside of you and what you're doing is actually creating your external reality and the things mm -hmm. that are coming into your life. And it's a lot easier rather than self-reflecting to be like, oh, you know, the, the world is just terrible and this person made me feel this way and that's why I did this. Um, but it gives away so much of your power and it's really not going to help you change anything in your life if you want to change anything. So for me, it was just making the concrete choice to say, okay, I know that anything I'm experiencing is being created by me. So if I want something to change, I have to choose to create something different. Mm -hmm. And that requires so much self-awareness, so much introspection, so much willingness to admit where maybe you were quote unquote wrong. Um, and just to, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, um, it's amazing. And you start making so many connections when you're open to that. Um, but I think that also it doesn't, it won't just happen from choosing. Like you almost have to like do a lot of research to be able to ha understand some of the concepts, I guess. So I had been spending the past four years reading books about, um, about the subconscious mind, about, uh, spirituality, about, how trauma affects our perceptions of things, how just so many things. And I think it's really, it would be really hard to make connections and understand myself if I didn't have sort of like that general foundation of knowledge. Um, but it is such an empowering thing to recognize. And then maybe you'll just get curious after you realize like, oh, I'm creating that. Um, and just sort of start, start, tracing back from situations and realizing like, oh, okay, like 
this is definitely coming, stemming from this belief or this thought that I had and learning how to change it is so cool and so fun and super empowering. And yeah, it just makes life a lot smoother, I think. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Uh, can you provide a specific example of something in the past six months where you could imagine yourself in the past uh, being like, oh, this is terrible. This is just something that's happening. Like I'm this is like, woe is me for like, can you, can you kind of point to a specific like story or example of like, oh, even a, six, a few months ago, I would have reacted very differently to this situation. Mm. And like, how did you react differently? Yeah. Um, so actually this might interest you because you're in the medical field. Um, I mean, this is applicable. Like I could give you so many little examples of like little things in my relationship with Mike where I, you know, something happens and I normally I'd be like, Oh, he's just being a jerk. And then I realize that how I'm perceiving it is stemming from something. But, uh, this specific example, um, which I think we'll get into later talking about an ayahuasca journey that I had about mm-hmm. a month ago. But a few days after that journey, um, I got really sick. I had like, I haven't had a fever in years and I had this really high fever. I was super nauseous. I was, things were coming out of every, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. purging, I was vomiting. I was and um, and it was something that in the past I would have felt really, um, like down and especially because I'm very like conscientious about my health I would have been like oh like why is this happening I'm so careful about my health like I shouldn't be getting sick um and I was able to reframe it as understanding that like I have taken in a lot of negativity I have held in a lot of negativity um in my physical body and understanding that this physical illness isn't just like, oh, something that's happening to me, but it's something that I chose through doing the work that I was doing leading up to this ayahuasca journey to release so much negativity and that the physical body has a lot of different ways of doing that. And that was just how my body was doing it in that moment. And to be able to reframe it and be like, okay, this is part of my process. This is something that I have actually chosen for myself and I know that I'm going to come out on the other side so much clearer and um cleaner I guess uh and that was really cool to just be like oh I'm not laying in bed like oh this sucks like when is this gonna be over it was just like oh I feel like I'm you know releasing so much and even though it's really not it's uncomfortable I could embrace the discomfort knowing that there was something brighter on the other side Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I think of an example about recently where uh, I had so I I helped one second I helped uh, a couple of my friends kind of reach that point and for them it was like learning how to cry again like they, they just it can suck it can really suck when if you've gone through like a large part of your adult life especially as a man not crying especially in front of others and uh kind of allowing yourself to go past that block is very uncomfortable mm-hmm. but you know it gets easier and it gets more fun sometimes and it's just mm-hmm. you know it's not this doesn't need to be like a, oh, I'm holding a bear. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yes I'm I'm so glad you brought that up I can relate to that so much and that's even for women I, I think, yes, it is a little so more socially acceptable for women. And I know Mike has had to, I mean, he 
you before when we first got married like oh my gosh you would never see him cry and I think he cries more than I do now and it's like but it's a healthy thing and mm. um yeah I've had to learn that too especially being vulnerable in front of other people I refused to cry in front of anyone um for a long time and it is it's something that we have to relearn because it's been so suppressed uh even just from childhood, like you hear like, Oh, don't cry. Like, oh, you're fine. It's okay. And uh, that's really just teaching children that it's not okay to cry. And you have to pretend that you're fine, even if you're not, because you hear you have somebody who's in an authority figure or somebody who you trust to tell you the truth. And if they're saying, no, you're fine. You don't feel that. Then you say, Oh, maybe I'm, maybe I don't feel that and mm. push it mm. down. Mm. What is something in the next six months that you're looking forward to? Ooh, um, I'm writing a book, which I'm really excited about. And I'm also launching an e-magazine. So those are on like the creative side. I'm really excited about. And um, I'm also just excited to be back in the States for the summer. I love being in the States uh, mm -hmm. during the summer. Not so much in the winter, but. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you seem like a tropical person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Are you uh, ready to roll into this thing? I am. Okay. Oh, and, <laughs> I oh, am. Excellent. Good. Um, so, oh, also, if there's, uh, so there are a lot of good natural stopping points in this in these interviews. So, like in between prompts, I'll say, like, kind of when I'm like, okay, I think we're, we're ready to move on. I'll say, okay, now how do you answer that next prompt before I die? I want. And during those times, if you're like, time out, bathroom break, whatever, we can pause, okay. like, edit that out, no problem. It'll be real easy. Okay. We'll time out real quick because I'm gonna let the dog out of the house because she's whining. Okay. So, two seconds. Mm -hmm. It's weird timely because I think my dog just came back from a walk with <laughs> Mackenzie. <laughs> we have two dogs now. Oh, that's a lot of dog and a lot of baby. Yeah, and then there's four other dogs that live in our little like complex, and they all play together. So yeah. Lucan's basically just like uh, run the boy who was raised by wolves because he's just like <laughs> out of the pack. <laughs> gotcha. You ready to roll? Okay. 